reaches to the heaven. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky. you guys. Nathan and Joseph, thank you so much. Pastor gets up and he looks out and the house is full. It's a great vision to see that you are here. We have a few visitors with us this morning. Welcome. We're glad you guys are here. Um, and if you are a visitor with us this morning in the back of the sanctuary there at the little podium, there are some visitors cards. If you would be kind enough to fill one of those out, uh, drop it in the box right there or hand it to me or any other member of this church. We would love to get to know how to pray for you, how to welcome you, how to get to know you um, and connect with you. Amen. But turn with me, please, to the gospel of Matthew chapter 19. This is a passage of scripture that reminds us of a teaching on divorce that G Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5. So if you're taking notes, this text in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, is very similar to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, uh, I discovered that I originally preached on Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, on August 30th, 2020. Two years ago, we were in Matthew 5, now we're in Matthew 19. 
And I had to really wrestle and, and pray about how much do I bring from that sermon two years ago into this sermon. Um, and I, and here's where I've come down. I do not want to repeat too much of that sermon from two years ago, even though that the teaching on divorce by Jesus is always the same. There are also other things that I want to emphasize today. So I want to encourage you that if you wish to learn more on the various passages of scripture concerning divorce and even the traditions in the church of how these passages have been interpreted, then I want to direct you to that sermon audio from August 30th, 2020. That was a sermon that really unpacked a lot of the history of the church on this issue, um, even the history of the Jewish tradition on this issue, and even contemporary views on this issue. Uh, I don't want to repeat that today. Um, so if you're able to go back on the sermon archive, you can do that on our church website. You can even go back in the podcast feeds that we have. Uh, it's up on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're on Spotify now. Any other podcast sources, you may find us. So it's there. Okay. But today here, I, I wish to focus on the words of Jesus and in response to the questions of the Pharisees in Matthew 19, verse 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And his response to them was this, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And that's in verse 8. And that will be the focus I want us to really emphasize here today. What is Jesus meaning by that? So as we seek the Lord's voice in today's passage, I think the point in this lesson from Jesus is on the origin of marriage from the beginning, the relationship between men and women as God created it, as he intended it. And that's where we're, I think that's the message from Jesus in this text. So if you're able to stand, will you stand and as we read God's word together, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Controversial passage, an important passage, but let's pray together. Father God, we do need your discernment this morning to understand what you intended from the beginning. Lord, we live in a day and age in a culture, in a society that sees marriage as just another relationship that can come and go, that if it is not satisfying to my needs or my wishes, then I can move on to someone else. 
But from the beginning, Father, that was not your intent. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear the compassion of your son in this text. There are some in this room who have suffered the trauma of divorce. There are others who are in troubled marriages and they're struggling, thinking this must end. So God, I pray for your grace this morning. That as we hear the words of Jesus, as he's teaching these Pharisees and opposing them in their misinterpretation of God's will, that you would cause us to hear Jesus's truth here, his compassion, his love, his teaching of what God intends for us. That's where we need to focus. And so, Lord, let this time be for your glory, we pray. Give us your compassion. Give us your grace. In Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen. Have a seat. Matthew continues here in chapter 19 by taking us along Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Remember, at this point, uh, to the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has turned his face to Jerusalem. And all of chapter 18, if you remember, was this interaction Uh, this one sermon, this teaching between he and his disciples about really who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and then how we focus on little ones and how we focus on the harmony of brothers and sisters in the church body. But now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19, Matthew is transitioning us and down a different journey, but a further teaching. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and verse 1 tells us, verses 1 and 2 tells us, the geographic details of where he's headed. That, that's just kind of his literary way of guiding us through the, the geography and the history and the transition of the timeline of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He's moving south. Jesus is moving south toward Jerusalem. Judea is where the holy city was. And common to Matthew's gospel, what happens? Wherever Jesus goes, large crowds seem to follow. And this is a detail here in verses 1 and 2. Now, beginning in verse three, this is the this is the scene. Now we're transitioning away from Jesus and his disciples, and now the Pharisees are amongst the crowd. Right, wherever the crowds come, you will always have Pharisees scattered in the midst. Verse three, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him, saying, or by asking, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?" This is the tension. Many of us in this room are wrestling with this idea. This, verses 3 through 12 of chapter 19 will contain three separate questions posed to Jesus. It's just one of three. And this is concerning really how to live in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, we can observe that the sermon that began in chapter 18 is combined with the questions from the Pharisees and the disciples in chapter 19. And this is a roadmap, and some scholars called this a, a roadmap for household rules in the kingdom of heaven. These are household rules. How, how do we, how do we conduct ourselves in the household of God? The kingdom of heaven. The first question here, verses three through six, is looking at the question of divorce for any cause. And the second question in verses 7 through 9 is the question of mo- the Mosaic law concerning divorce. And then the third question that we'll actually focus on next week, we won't look at that today, is the third question in verses 10 through 12, marriage or singleness? 
All of this is related. And today I want us to look at the first two questions there in verses 3 through 9. This first question concerning divorce for any cause is followed up with a question concerning the Mosaic law that permits divorce. And in looking at these two questions and the exchange with Jesus, I think that we'll see how Jesus points not to permission for divorce, yet he's pointing to something bigger, the greater truth of God's original intent for marriage. That, I think, is the takeaway from this interaction, more so than the permission for divorce. Because the original intent for God's creation and his relationship with his created, divorce was not so in the beginning. And that's the point. So look at here in verse 3. Now the Pharisees enter the scene, and actually they're mimicking the same type of self-serving question that we saw the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, ask Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. Remember that one? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? It's the same kind of self-serving question here in Matthew 19, verse 1. Remember that in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees and the scribes comprise much of the tension here. In verses, and actually in chapters 12, 15, and 16, we saw all that tension. And now again in, in the 19th chapter, we see them again testing Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I mean, the Pharisaical attitude in this exchange, I think, shows the distorted intent of this, these men, these teachers of the law. They distorted the intent of God's law. We see that again here in this question. And if we're not careful, we as biblical-minded Christians who seek to live out holy lives before the Lord, we can fall into the same attitude as the Pharisees. The passage concerning marriage and divorce, this is ripe for this type of pharisaical thinking because we look at Jesus' exception clause. Are we justified in divorce or not? Give me, the, give me the, the, the limits of my boundaries here, Lord. How far can I go in this relationship with this man or woman? When can I get out of it? Give me permission. That's what the Pharisees were asking. And if we're not careful, we as biblical-minded Christians, we can fall into the same way of thinking about this issue. I mean, too often we approach this test with a pharisaical attitude. Should we allow a Christian couple to divorce? No. Should we allow a divorced Christian to remarry? No, but maybe. I mean, see the tension in this type of question. We, we wrestle with this. I mean, if we're not careful, again, we can interpret this passage the same way the Pharisees interpreted a Mosaic law and make it more of a legal issue and a demand than and forget what God intended from the beginning. You hearing my, my caution here? Even as I was reading and praying through this, I, I wrestled with this text all week. Am I thinking like a Pharisee here trying to get the details of this? The do's or the don'ts? Or are we seeing something else here? I mean, we can have the same pharisaical attitude, 
by the intent of testing the holiness of a troubled marriage. Are we going to test the limits of a marriage bond? The Pharisees are testing Jesus. Are we testing decisions that have to be made for those who suffer the trauma of divorce? I mean, two opposing views between the Pharisees and Jesus concerning marriage, I think, are revealed here. Jesus emphasizes the sanctity, the holiness of marriage. In contrast, the Pharisees reveal a stubborn unbelief that leads to a casual view on divorce. I mean, yet the emphasis by Jesus on marriage, I think, should be the takeaway from this passage rather than questions of the legality of divorce. I mean, it's marriage between two different creatures made by God. Would you agree? God made two very different creatures, men and women. The women are going... Yes, why didn't he just make them like a woman? You know, you know, the problem with husbands are we don't think like our wives. And the women are going, yeah, why don't you just think more like me? And the men are the same way. Well, why doesn't she just think like a man? And that's the tension, isn't it? God created us this way. I mean, it's marriage between two very different creatures. But God himself has joined them together as one. And to emphasize divorce from this passage, I think relegates the union of marriage to a secondary place, and we emphasize instead the split. We don't want to emphasize splitting up marriages. We don't want to look for that loophole. Instead, I think we want to hear the words of our Lord, it was not that way from the beginning. I mean, to emphasize divorce here actually limits and and diminishes the holiness and the sanctity of this thing God has made called marriage to a secondary place. And if we do that, we're no better than the Pharisees. And so so I think we should join Jesus' emphasis on marriage and God's creation of it rather than focusing so much on whether divorce is legal or not. There's problems there that we'll get into. And again, I want to point you back to the sermon from 2020, August of 2020, that gives a little bit more of the historical background here. Now, now this is not to demit, not to belittle the dire ramifications that divorce brings. If you've been through a divorce, you know the pain. Jesus makes this clear as well, but I think his words concerning divorce are meant to amplify the holiness, the sanctity of it as it was in the beginning. Look here at verses 5 and 6. I mean, look at Jesus' response here. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, verse 5, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Jesus' response to the question, Can you divorce your wife for any cause? I mean, he responds to these Pharisees, their question with Scripture. Notice that? I mean, I think this is a practice can be compared to the wilderness temptations that Jesus went through in Matthew chapter 4. Same kind of method. Here's the question from distorted minds about God's will, and Jesus responds with God's word. As evil tempts us through the questioning of God's law, Jesus responds with God's word. I mean, how appropriate is this method in this exchange? Think about it. Here in verse 5, Jesus cites Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one 
flesh. I mean, we've got to ask this probing question here. If you want to flip over to Genesis chapter 2, I want to look at some of this text here. Genesis chapter 2 is in the beginning of marriage, how God intended it. And you can actually look, if you're taking notes, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 is the first marriage that God himself initiates. Let's read that. Let's, let's, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 18 through 25 of Genesis 2. Because this is where Jesus is pointing us to. How do we think about marriage? Verse 18 of Genesis 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That right there, verse 18, sets exactly why marriage comes into being. The first man was not complete. It's not that the woman was an afterthought. God knew what he was doing. But he saw that the man was, he was not good. The man was not good. He wasn't complete. It was not good for him to be alone. So what does God do? He makes a helper. How many wives in this room understand your role? You are the helper. I was talking with a couple this morning and we were uh, jokingly talking about how the wife will help the husband by suggesting things for him. Men. When our wives are suggesting things to us, what are they doing? They are fulfilling what God has created them to be. They are our helpers. All the ladies said that, didn't they? Verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now I'm going to pause right there with a little side comment. This is why men take naps every afternoon. It's biblical, guys. Here's your justification. That wakes you up a little bit, doesn't it? Verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You see the imagery? You see the wedding imagery here, verse 22? The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Don't we do that in our wedding ceremonies now? Someone will bring the bride, the helper fit for the groom to him as a gift as a sign of this is your helper that the Lord is bringing to you. Verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the text that Jesus is citing to the Pharisees showing them that their question about divorce for any cause, just like Peter, just like the disciples, would ask the wrong question. That's Jesus' response in the Gospels. When they would ask him these type of questions, his answer really is, well, you're asking the wrong question. So when we are asking questions like this, 
about is it legal biblically for me to divorce, I think we're asking the wrong question. Because that wasn't the way it was in the beginning. I mean, this passage in Genesis shows us exactly what Jesus means. I mean, consider the first wedding, the first marriage. Think about this in in, in verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is being said as God has brought the first woman to the first man. There were no parents at this point. So we have to ask the question, which father did Adam and Eve leave in order to be one with each other? I think it would not be too far of a distraction to conclude that the father here in the first wedding is God the Father. As we leave our fathers and mothers to wed a beautiful bride or join a handsome husband, we're leaving in a way God the Father to be joined with another. I say this because Adam and Eve left the unique relationship they had with God the Father in perfect paradise to be joined together by God's hand for a greater purpose and a greater benefit. That's as it was in the beginning. But I also agree that a single Christian is intimately connected and dependent upon the presence and the love of God the Father. I mean, while, while that Christian man or woman does leave an earthly father or mother when we get married, we do leave earthly fathers and mothers to be joined with someone else. I think the biblical understanding goes a little bit deeper. Is God the Father the one that we, that who is handing us to another? I mean, while that, let's think about this. In no way does this new marriage replace the intimate relationship that we have with God, but now intimacy is focused on one another as one flesh, and now we as married couples share the intimate relationship with God the Father together. That gives you a deeper understanding of being given in marriage, doesn't it? I mean, in the beginning of marriage, God intended something good for the first man and the first woman. They were to be helpers fit for one another. She comes alongside him to help him, to complete him as God saw the need. He took her to his side to protect her, to lead her, to direct her, to care to the care of God the Father. He was to lead her to the throne of heaven before the Father in heaven. We come alongside each other. The man is to steward all that God gives him to steward, and this also means the stewardship of his wife's spiritual and physical health. I mean, the woman is to help her husband to complete all that God has for him to complete. Ladies, are you hearing me? Your husband's have been given something big by God the Father to complete and to do. Are you helping him? I mean, the woman is to help her husband. And what is this? The, The husband and the wife together, they steward together the creation, and that's been called the grand theater of God's glory. You ever heard of that? God's creation has been called his grand theater. And the man and the woman in marriage, they are actors in this. They are lead in this. They are the king and the queen 
of God's creation that he has placed to show his glory. That's our job. It's why we were made. That's the way it was in the beginning. I mean, this is what Jesus means here in response to the Pharisees in their question of divorce for any cause. He says, from the beginning, our Lord truly gathers that a man and a woman are one flesh and that the Lord said it and did the joining. He does this. He unites them. And since this is the case that God joins together the man and the woman, it follows that no one can separate them. No one. Nor is it permitted to divorce one's wife for any reason. Likewise, I think it's logical to conclude that no woman should divorce her husband for any reason. It goes both ways. Because here's the problem. Men want to send their wives away because they burnt the biscuits. But likewise, ladies, let's think about this. Women want to send their husbands away for not loving her biscuits. You see the tension? I mean, why does Jesus tell the Pharisees that no man should tear apart what God has joined together? Why is that? Because first, man is not the creator. We don't create. If God made it, only God can divide it. Our human reason, we can justify any sin, can't we? We can justify our sin for whatever cause, especially divorce. I mean, we can justify and any, any limitless number of reasons to divorce our spouses. Well, he snores and keeps me awake and I have to have my sleep, so I need to get rid of him. Well, she's just messy and she doesn't take care of me and I'm on my own, so I might as well just go be on my own. We can justify a lot of different things, can't we? I mean, likewise, it, it, but think about this. If no human reason can ever prevail over God's will... The distorted rationale from these Pharisees on divorcing one's wife could never prevail. I mean, for them, think about this. Their reason was that Moses was more important than God. We see that here in verse 7. Go back to uh, Genesis, I mean, Matthew chapter 19, verse 7. The Pharisees are now in their follow-up question going to reveal their intent. They're going to verify, they're going to reveal their reasoning, their rationale for divorce. Verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? You hearing that? Okay, Jesus, I hear what you say, but why did Moses command this? Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? I mean, these Pharisees are actually citing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, as kind of like they were holding back this weapon to use at the right moment in their rhetoric, in their discourse. Okay, Jesus, we got you. But in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, verse, actually verses 1 through 4, Moses gives command for a letter of divorce. Let's look at that. They may have heard that Jesus was teaching on marriage and how marriage could not be dissolved. They may have heard about that. So when they came around Jesus in this crowd, they came armed with this permission from the Mosaic law and they felt that could expose Jesus as a heretic and blasphemer. The the law concerning divorce from Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 gives a list of conditions of divorce and remarriage. Let's look at that real quickly. If you want to flip over there to Deuteronomy chapter 24, let's take a look at that briefly. Uh, We won't unpack it too much, but... 
It does give us the reason why the Pharisees were thinking that divorce was commanded. Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 1. When a woman takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, verse 2, and if he goes and becomes another, or if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, verse 4, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has become defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." Interesting here, isn't it? What's going on? I mean, the law concerning divorce here in Deuteronomy 24, it gives a list of conditions for divorce and remarriage. Almost as if divorce and remarriage is permitted, yet there are limits. If a woman is sent away with a letter of divorce from her first husband, she apparently in this is allowed to remarry. However, If the second husband sends her away, he gets rid of her. Or let's say the second husband dies. Now she's a widow. According to this law, she can never return to her first husband because now she is defiled. Confusing, isn't it? And and the Pharisees who love to take the Mosaic law and make it their own, they made it even more confusing. (laughs) And that's why we come into this issue in Matthew 19. The focus of divorce in the four verses of Deuteronomy 24, they seem to be centered on the reason for divorce of sexual defilement. The first husband divorces her because of some indecency in her. Now that clearly can be interpreted in a thousand different ways depending on a thousand different human reasons. But it seems to be the intent here is some indecency in her is something that is immoral. The second husband does the same as he hates her, quote-unquote, for the same reason. Now this poor woman is double-doomed because since she has now legally been bound to a second husband, she cannot go back to her first husband because now she's even more defiled. Ladies, aren't you glad that you live in in the 21st century and not back in the Mosaic Law? Much different. Look here, at, let's go back here to Matthew 19, verse 8, because Jesus is going to help us think about this. He's going to respond to this comment of the Pharisees in verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. That's the key. I think Jesus' response here to the Pharisees showcases why Moses, quote-unquote, permitted divorce and remarriage. The command to give a letter of divorce was a protection for the woman in the case of marital infidelity or division. It was, a, it was really is a legal protection for the ladies in the Mosaic Law. It's really what it was there for. Moses permitted the divorce, not because he approved of divorce, but for the reason centered on the greater good of two evils. He, uh, he permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. You're a bunch of sinful folk. And Moses gave a structure in the Mosaic law for choosing the lesser of two evils. That's the best way to understand that. 
He wanted, think about this, because in that day, you could stone your wife for infidelity. Or just the perception or the charge of infidelity. They would stone her even without a trial. So I think part of what Moses' law was doing here, he wanted to avoid murder. Which is the lesser of two evils? Divorce your wife or go stone her? I think logically divorce would be the lesser of two evils. Both are bad. The stoning of a defiled woman in adultery would be worse. He wanted to avoid also legalizing the husband's promiscuity. This was also to hold men accountable. You can't just go out and your eyes wander and find something else that's sweeter to your eyes and get rid of your wife. You've got to have legal reason for a divorce. So there, again, Moses is trying to find some structure within the Mosaic law to protect a greater evil. He wanted to protect the woman's reputation as well, since the first husband's letter of divorce was really a public document guaranteeing her chastity so that she does not go out and be seen as an adulterous, promiscuous woman. She was married. Her husband cast her out. So in some way, there's a little bit of protection there for her as a victim. And lastly, I think he wanted to slow down the hasty divorce in the heat of the moment. This is where I think our uh, secular legal Legal courts could actually learn from the Mosaic Law. Let's slow down the eagerness to divorce. I mean, even here in town, I have seen billboards for easy divorce, 300 bucks and you're done. I think we need to slow down the high energy emotions around divorce. Slow it down and let's figure this out reasonably. I mean, just like it, I, I would not advocate a couple coming to me wanting to be married and I've not had any kind of counseling with them for a while. Same reason. You don't want to go rushing into a marriage blind. Likewise, you don't want to split up the marriage out of the heat of emotion. Let's slow it down a little bit. So, so the letter of divorce that Moses commanded here, uh, was not a command of divorce, but it was a, it, it allowed divorce under restricted circumstances. Notice here that Jesus corrects the argument that these Pharisees use, though. Notice that what they said. They said that Moses commanded a bill of divorce as if if Moses commanded divorce. Jesus says that Moses allowed or permitted a bill of divorce. Notice the two different words there. The Pharisees were saying divorce is commanded by Moses, and Jesus says, no, he didn't command it. He permitted it. Major difference. Jesus intended to show that God's intent is always superior to the human reason. I mean, think about it. We can never out-reason God. And divorce and remarriage is a key argument here in Christian churches, even today, that we try to reason through, and there's a lot of landmines here. Permission, I mean, divorce is permitted? Doesn't mean it's commanded. If, if a couple must end in divorce, it must be the last resort and there must be circumstances that reasonably you say, we hate it, but maybe this is the lesser of the evils. But by all means, it was not that way from the beginning. That's the point. 
And let's look here in verse 9, because this is the controversial verse. And Jesus continues and said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is the exception clause in Scripture that many will point to as justification for divorce. Now, I support the idea of an exception clause in this discussion. There, As much as divorce is not what God originally intended, as much as divorce is not the answer to marital problems. I do not see that God or Jesus anywhere in Scripture says divorce must happen. It's only because we are sinners that this is even permitted. But the exception clause here, I think, is is valid and should be considered because this is just one example the primary example in Christian discussions that if there is sexual immorality occurring, then maybe divorce is permitted. Not commanded, not necessary, but permitted. Many Christian arguments for divorce and remarriage, I mean, again, point out this one verse to justify divorce. Some look at this verse as the open door to putting away their spouse. I mean, others look to this verse to ease their conscience because of a devastating divorce. I mean, the idea of except for sexual immorality, or the King James Version says except for fornication, implies a perversion of this intimate relationship between a man and a woman. The idea of fornication or sexual immorality is the idea of porneia, the Greek word that we use for pornography. The idea of perversion of the marriage covenant. I think that's the bigger issue I want us to see. It's not just perversion of the physical being. That's just a minor reaction, but it's the perversion of the spiritual intent of the intimate connection between men and women. Pornography is not just what men look at. Porneia is a distortion of God's original intent and intimacy, the relationship between God and his people that was broken in Genesis chapter 3. It was porneia that caused the division between God and his creation. It was porneia that split God's people from his righteous love and and affections. We see that in the prophets of the Old Testament over and over and over again. We're studying the book of Hosea on Wednesday nights as the introduction to the look at all 12 minor prophets. And the focus of Hosea is that the prophet Hosea is commanded by God to marry a prostitute who perverts and distorts God's love for his people. God sees this as porneia. The imagery here in the marriage relationship points to a bigger picture, the bigger godly relationship between God, our creator, who loves his creation. And what do we do? We distort it. We twist it. We cast it away. We don't want our father in heaven anymore. That is the bigger point of what Jesus is saying here. If we divorce our spouse, 
What we're saying is we're also divorcing the love of our Father in heaven. And Jesus implies here, what does porneia mean? It's the idea of perversion of the marriage covenant. Literally sexual immorality, but the idea of divorce is to release someone, release you from the covenant. Is God ever going to release his side of his covenant with his people? Never. Jesus Christ issues in the new covenant through his blood and we are his church under his covenant and he will never divorce us. That's the point that Jesus is making here to these Pharisees. I mean, Jesus implies here that the porneia already shows that the guilty party has released himself or herself from the marriage vows. So this is why in this case, the exception clause Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, except for porneia, and marries another commits adultery. The sexual immorality is already evidence that the guilty party has separated themselves, released themselves from the marriage. Now, often women will justify divorcing their husbands because of a pornography addiction. And I think there is justification for that. I mean, porneia is the original idea here that we're using in pornography. And I agree that an addiction of this kind, it, it can be grounds for releasing the marriage vow. I think it can be. But I also agree that Scripture shows a God who chases after his bride, even though she is wayward and unfaithful to her husband. So what I'm arguing here is be cautious about any desire to divorce. You following me here? I think that's what Jesus is saying here as well. I mean, Jesus does not mandate divorce because of porneia, sexual immorality. He does not mandate it, but he does, however, give reason for why a divorce might be justified even though it is still an evil but because of the hardness of our sinful hearts, maybe there's no other option. But in the Christian circles, I would, I would never, never encourage divorce. Never would I approve of. And there's a deeper lesson that we can go into in Paul's teaching and, and about marriage and divorce. I, I we can go into all of that too, but today we don't have time. So I want to close this this time today in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, with this this idea, this reminder. The words of Jesus in verse 8. But from the beginning, it was not so. I mean, if we just remind ourselves of that one phrase from our Lord on anything, whether it be divorce, whether it be our sinful anger towards someone else, whether it be uh, any kind of sin that we're struggling with, if we just remember what Jesus says here, but from the beginning, it was not so. Would that not cause us to pause before we are consumed with the evil and the perversion of sin? Would that not cause us to pause before we try to justify something that is vile and against God's will? But from the beginning, it was not so. You see, it's it's the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden that ushered in the distortion of God's creation that we now inhabit. 
But from the beginning, it was not so. The gospel is this. Jesus is desiring to redeem his people and take them back to the way it was before the fall. That's the goal here. That's the purpose. All that we strive to do for the kingdom of God in our everyday lives, with our families, within our relationships, if God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem what is broken in these daily encounters, what was fallen away from, and God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to restore what was broken, to bring it back to the beginning, then our marriages are to be what God intended from the beginning. I mean, Adam and Eve were not ashamed of who they were when God brought them together and made them one. They were without shame. Yet, we are ashamed of our spouses, aren't we? We're ashamed that we got stuck in this lifetime of misery with this woman or this man. That's not the way it was in the beginning. There was openness, intimacy between one another and openness with God and intimacy with Him and He with them. And that's what it was in the beginning. Just as we're in a marriage relationship as the church, we are the bride of Christ. As the children of Israel, we're the bride of God. Then our marriages to one another should reflect the same in this present reality that we are in. That's what we're called to. I mean, the the cosmos, all of created order, has been called the theater of God's glory. And we human beings, we men and women, we were created to play out God's glory in this wonderful theater of His created cosmos. So our marriages are not about our satisfaction. Our marriages are part of the grand theater of God's glory. But as redeemed sinners, bought by the blood of Christ, we are washed clean of that guilt associated with sin. Remember last week we looked at the text before this at the end of chapter 18 on being guilty sinners and God's forgiveness of us even though we're guilty. I mean... If, if we are redeemed sinners bought by the blood of Christ, we are no longer guilty associated with our sin. We're still sinners, but we're no longer guilty. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. We're then to reflect God's glory and we're to shine it clearly to this fallen world that human reason distorts. I mean, our individual lives should reflect this glory of redemption and reconciliation. So our marriages to one another are to reflect this glory of redemption and reconciliation that is God's theater of glory. And so I conclude here as the musicians are coming. Whether it is permissible for Christian marriages to end in divorce... And then should these divorces remarry as we all... I mean, this text seems to imply, yes, you can remarry if. However, I think what's missed here is that our desire to clarify whether or not we're permitted to divorce and remarry has more to do with our peace of mind and our justification for ourselves than it is to do with God's glory. It was not that way in the beginning. That's the words of our Lord. In the beginning, 
It was not so. So I know that the pain of divorce is real. I know that in the beginning, God united man and woman as one flesh to showcase his glory. So let's focus on that lesson from our Lord. Whatever God intended in the beginning is the point of our lives as Christians. It's the point of our lives together as married men and married women. He intended for women to come alongside their husbands as helpers, not nags or bossy busybodies. He intended for men to embrace and cherish the wife God has given them, not to see her as a, as a threat or as a ball and chain who holds him back from his own pride and glory. Our marriages are to be different. Amen? Let me close this in prayer. Father God, I I love you and I love your honesty and your word and we all love you, Father, and we love the fact that your Son, Jesus Christ, is our only hope for redemption. And so God, as as we, we conclude seeing and reading the words of your Son here, I pray that you'd bring to our minds this idea that it was not so from the beginning. Any, any, any sinful thought, any sinful action, any sinful desire to disrupt your harmony in this creation of yours, it was not so in the beginning. And so God, I pray right now for, for those in this room, those who are hearing these words, who are in marriages that are troubled and, and strained. I pray, God, that your merciful grace and your presence would pour into that family, into that home and remind them of why you brought this man and this woman together in the first place. Lord, we need your help in this age of secular thinking that our relationships are to benefit our needs, not that our relationships reflect your glory. And so, God, I pray that you would cause us to rethink any time that we are tempted to sin and and harm one another, you would remind us it was not so from the beginning. And you would slow us down in our anger. You would slow us down in our passions for sin. And you would cause us to reflect on the words of your son here. We do not divorce one another for any cause even though we have divorced you, Father, for the cause of our own pride. But Lord, you love us enough to redeem us. You love us enough to chase after your wayward bride who is adulterous and and running. You will never divorce us, Lord. And so God, I pray for your grace today as we close this time of worship. You would speak, your spirit would just speak into each of us. You would love us where we are. If we have faced a divorce in our past, Lord, give us your grace and your forgiveness and your comfort to realize that you love us still. If we are in a marriage situation that is tense, Lord, that you would remind us of what it was like in the beginning with the first man and first woman walking with you in the garden with peace and harmony. Lord, we desire your love. We desire your wisdom. We desire your presence in our lives, in our marriages, in our families. Please hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.